Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From Decrypt Media, this is the Decrypt Daily, and my name is Matthew Diemer. Today on the show, a week in review with writer from Decrypt, Scott Cipollina. That's coming up today on the Decrypt Daily. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today is Friday, August 13th, 2021. As you can hear, my microphone system is not what it usually is. That's because we have no electricity, no power, no, well, no electricity and no power is exactly the same thing. What I meant to say was no Wi-Fi or internet. I don't even have cell phone tower signal. I have to drive down the road to get cell signal. <laughs> it's pretty gnarly over here in Ohio right now. But that doesn't mean that the crypto market sleeps and that I don't do my job because we need to bring this to you. So today we're talking to writer from Decrypt, Scott Cipollina, a week in review. It's a longer conversation today because, well, a lot of things happened and we wanted to go more in depth. But before we get into that, let's get into our crypto prices. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. And I'm recording this at 11.11 Eastern Standard Time. Bitcoin is sitting at $46,330, up 4.5% in 24 and 13.3% in 7. Ethereum's in the number 2 spot at $3,203, up 5.2%. Binance Coin, number 3, at $395.77, up 5.1%. Cardano at $1.96, up 14.7%. And Tether's in the number 5 spot. Running off the top 10, we have XRP, Dogecoin, USDC, Polkadot, and Uniswap. Total market cap, we're at $1.94 trillion. And a BTC dominance of 44.9%. And that's dominance of 19.4. Moving into our conversation today, I don't know how many times I could say his name in one podcast, but I think it's going to be about four or five. <laughs> but Scott Cipollina, the writer for Decrypt. Enjoy this week in review. Scott Cipollina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matthew. How are you doing? Very good. This is our week in review. A lot of things happened this week. We're going to go over it. And just a quick um, disclaimer for everybody who's listening. Uh, and just an announcement that we are going to be telling you what happened this week, but we also might give you our opinions. So please uh, just understand that we will tell you the facts, but also our opinions. We're both two opinionated dudes, but we want to talk about this week in review. First thing that's on my list is the infrastructure bill. What happened this week with the infrastructure bill? Yeah, so um, pretty much no matter who you ask in the crypto industry, it's essentially bad news for the crypto industry. The crypto lobby lost. What happened was um, the Senate rejected a crypto provision that would have exempted non-custodial crypto actors. So by that, I mean folks like miners and software developers from having to comply with certain tax requirements that they say they are not able to comply with. Uh, and basically behind the scenes, what happened was a gentleman that is named Richard Shelby, a senator from a Republican senator from Alabama, he tried to push a $50 billion um, military infrastructure spending proposal onto the bill itself. Uh, this then caused the crypto amendment that the crypto folk were hoping for to fail. Uh, and the end result of that was that the original language of the infrastructure bill, which captured those non-custodial actors, actors that I mentioned in with the tax requirements that the bill laid out. Um, and those folks, as I said, they say that they cannot comply. 
with those requirements. Um, and essentially, if we look forward to the future, there's a bit of a fear that this bill, the way that it's worded, um, if it is eventually signed into law, it could spell, you know, you could potentially deal a fatal flow, a fatal blow to the crypto industry in the United States. Um, just to push back on that a little bit and just to define it a little bit, uh, when we're talking about a mm -hmm. blow to the crypto industry in the United States, this is defining what a broker is. And a broker could be a miner. It could be a, um, uh, somebody who's staking as well, if, if I'm correct. Yep. The reason why that those people cannot comply is because you can't fill a 1099 or a tax, for tax item for every um, block that you mine or every uh, little bit that's staked because you don't know how the staking rewards are paid as well as you don't know who's mining and where that, where the, you know, so it's like to correct, collect mm -hmm. the uh, information or the, I guess, all the information of that's needed to uh, be compliant as a broker is uh, impossible with the way that the central, this decentralized system works. Am I correct with that? I don't want to speak for the miners or the software developers or any other of these groups, but that is what they are all alleging, that it's impossible to comply. The interesting discussion here, and this goes a little bit further into like the ideological positions that people have within crypto and outside of crypto um, is whether or not that's actually a good argument for the industry. People that are predisposed to agreeing with the promise of crypto will say, well, this is just bad legislation. It's legislation that that pins or demands an unrealistic um, standard on these non-custodial actors. Folks that are not necessarily so predisposed to believing in crypto think, well, you know, that's not an argument against the legislation. It's an argument against the industry. The industry cannot comply with what is a standard tax requirement around the rest of the world of finance, then it's an industry perhaps that we should not have. That is the line of argument that's been adopted by, for example, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, just pushing back, and I want everybody to hear this again. This is the speech from uh, Senator Ted Cruz uh, and what he said about understanding the crypto industry before uh, making regulations. So let's exercise a brief shining moment of common sense. And let's recognize if we've gathered all 100 senators in this chamber and ask them to stand up and articulate two sentences defining what in the hell a cryptocurrency is that you would not get greater than five who could answer that question. Given that reality, the barest exercise of prudence would say we shouldn't regulate something we don't yet understand. We should actually take the time to try to understand it. We should hold some hearings. We should consider the consequences. We shouldn't destroy people's lives and livelihoods from complete ignorance. It says, look, let's not do this till we know what we're talking about. Let's be cautious. Let's be reasonable. Let's not be the number one economic developer for the Communist Party of China by sending cryptocurrencies overseas to our competitors because we've made it impossible for them to succeed here. So I, I agree with uh, Senator Cruz here, which I am very, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised that I'm going to say, um, I don't agree with him for about just about anything. Um, I don't think he's definitely not on my top list of, of senators or legislators, but you know, he is right there. You have to understand the industry before you start regulating it. And, and I, sadly, I don't think any regulator or senator or congressperson really understands this industry right now. And just to push back a little bit on what we said before is that this could, you know, set the framework to destroy the industry. Do you really think that? I mean, this industry still could thrive without, without this or outside the United States. Bitcoin is still decentralized. The Ethereum is still decentralized. It just might not have the innovation here in some uh, aspects when it comes to staking, when it comes to mining, but companies that can 
provide uh, the information for being a brokerage can still be established here in the United States. We still can trade. We still can huddle. We still can uh, invest. Uh, but is but just one aspect of the industry might be um, not accessible to the U.S. Doesn't mean the industry is destroyed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, crypto will live to see another day if this bill um, makes it through the law in the United States. And just for example, as as you mentioned, this is just a an American issue essentially, and it doesn't govern the entire crypto industry. Again, we're just really discussing the impact that it will have on non-custodial uh, crypto actors, and if they cannot comply with this uh with this legislation if that's what it finally becomes then yes they'll have to move elsewhere um it depends on again what your belief is about the the promise of this industry if you believe crypto is going to be uh central to the to global finance in x amount of decades time then this is obviously a really really bad thing for the united states to be doing if you don't believe that then it's not such a big deal, but it depends on your perspective. <laughs> you know, just a, a quick observation, and this will tie in beautifully with our next uh, topic, uh, Poly Network. I listen to mm-hmm. I listen to the news every morning. I have you know news briefs. I have you know my briefs as I'm running for Congress. I have policy briefs that come to me. Um, I am very tuned in on what's happening in Washington and what's happening current events. And I did not hear anything on mainstream media about this uh, crypto bill um, going into the infrastructure bill, the crypto amendment going into the infrastructure bill. What I did hear on the mainstream media, though, was this $600 million hack of Poly Network. That's the only thing I've heard about the crypto industry. I didn't hear about Bitcoin prices. I didn't didn't hear anything about the debates that are happening on the floor when it came to the infrastructure bill. But I did hear about Poly Network because it is unprecedented. What happened, sir? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the poly network hack is not only the biggest hack in the in the in the in the relatively young um, decentralized finance culture slash community, but it is it is by far it's encompassed the largest hack the cryptocurrency industry generally has seen in its entire existence. Um, essentially, what poly network is, it's a multi chain protocol. It fell victim to a huge hack. Uh, the hacker stole about six hundred million dollars worth of multiple cryptocurrencies, um, the attack occurred on various chains, right? So Binance chain on Ethereum and on Polygon as well. Um, and essentially what, what it's done, apart from the fact that, um, now, well, apart from the fact that the money was stolen, obviously that's the immediate concern. It's also led up to some, it's, 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 it's created some really interesting talking points about the position of decentralized finance promise. If it's ever going to really be able to live up to the promises that, that it, that it, that people say it's going to live up to. Um, and really what we, I think a lot of people noticed, at, you know, the height of this hack, the poly network team was essentially just pleading on Twitter for the hacker to return funds, which, which eventually he did. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it sort of just laid bare a bit of, and this is perhaps, you know, tinged with my opinion, but it laid bare, I think a lot of the disadvantages or inherent issues with decentralized finance, obviously by design, there is a lack of third party, um, insurers or, or third-party intermediaries. So when something like this happens, when an exploit happens and um, people lose their money, the teams behind these, these protocols sometimes can't do very much. Um, and that can risk, you know, I think that there's been talk about how that can risk turning people away from the crypto industry more generally in the, you know, the months and years to come. I think this is just, uh, one. It's, it's really sad because I really hate when uh, these kind of things happen to the crypto space because it further discredits the crypto space. Look, we are it's an uphill battle. We've been facing, you know, the whole dark money thing. It's only for drug dealers and money launderers. And 
And then when, you know, these hacks happen and people run off or these rug pulls or, you know, um, exchanges go down or whatever, it's, it's just like further um, blemishes on a space that there is a lot of hardworking people that are trying to do amazing things and, and innovate technology. And it's different than, say, innovating technology when it comes to, say, social media or the Internet apps or what have you, because it involves people's money. Uh, so yeah. that's a difference than, say, hey, you know what, uh, uh, my Facebook page went down or my MySpace uh, page can't be pimped because there's an error in the, in the HTML code. There's a lot more stakes there. So it's, it's a huge problem that we were facing. What do you think some certain regulations or regulatory bodies can do when it comes to the DeFi space? Look, we have this brokerage thing that we just talked spoke about. Um, obviously, maybe they're just trying to push out DeFi, but if you want to keep mm-hmm. in DeFi, what would what do you think would be a good solution? I think maybe uh, just a, forcing DeFi uh, companies to one register within the, the area that they are operating, but also make sure that they have cash reserves in case there are hacks. Mm-hmm. We saw that Thorchain Rune were, was hacked twice, one for $5 million, one for $8 million. They had reserves. Uh, we know that uh, Binance was hacked at one point. I think it was $23 million. I can't remember the, the, the coin, but they have their SAFU fund, which they reimbursed. Uh, but this mm-hmm. one, they just were SOL. I mean, $600 million is a lot to have it reserved, but maybe they shouldn't have been playing the yeah. game with that much money then. You know, again, just talking about like, you know, the, the inherent design of decentralized finance protocols, it's, it's very hard to regulate them. I think from my perspective, that there should be, well, for one, there's a huge market. This isn't necessarily a regulatory point, but there's a huge market for insurance in this industry, um, which I don't think is, has, has reached anywhere near its potential. If we're talking about regulation, I'm just going to echo the points that have been made by the SEC chair, Gary Gensler, over the last couple of weeks. He's made them repeatedly on, on various platforms, um, that the DeFi industry could very well be, and I'm not, I'm not commenting on any particular protocol or any particular token here, but he believes quite strongly, and he said it quite clearly, that the DeFi industry, DeFi community could very well be in the business of selling unregistered securities by and large. I'm speaking generally here. And I think that, you know, when, we, when we're talking about investors getting exposed to securities, there are some very robust consumer protection laws that are in place in traditional finance. And those are just simply not in place in, in the world of decentralized finance right now. And that I could, of course, I could be wrong, but I don't think the world of decentralized finance as it currently stands is going to see anywhere near the mainstream adoption that I that I think some folks believe it will, because the vast majority of people will not be comfortable gaining exposure to those kinds of assets and those kinds of tokens without the necessary protection. Um, there are many people that are just turned off the traditional stock markets, right? And that's far more established than DeFi. So I think it has a really long way to go. Another thing that I'd like to say, and this is adjacent to regulation, but um, I think the DeFi industry and those that inhabit it directly need to be a lot more forthcoming about the problems and the risks that we've seen. Um, I was actually speaking to somebody who who's really close to this industry recently, and and they mentioned to me that with every with every vulnerability that gets exploited, the DeFi industry grows and becomes more safer and learns. That's actually the stats show that that's completely not not actually literally true at all. Um, there was a report that was released by uh, CypherTrace which is a, a fairly well-known company in the crypto space. They, they specialize in compliance issues surrounding crypto. And they released a report that suggested, that found actually that uh, DeFi-related hacks were up 270% in 2021 alone. And this is the kicker. That report was published right before the Poly Network hack had occurred. In 2021, yes. $474 million had been lost in DeFi hacks. That number over doubled overnight. Over the after the poly uh, the after the poly network hack occurred, so 
the numbers and the stats are, are just staring us really right in the face there by saying that the DeFi industry for all the innovation that it, and, and the exciting things that it's creating, it may not necessarily be learning about protecting consumers and it because the numbers are there and it shows that these, these things are continuously happening and potentially they're on the rise. Obviously, this is a very high profile event. It's by far the biggest hack that we've seen in the crypto industry and a lot of eyes have been turned. Um, but I think it's a bit of a watershed moment, frankly. I think that the DeFi industry really needs to wrestle with these issues and get them right um, or else it you know, potentially won't go as forward as, as people may think. That's a really good point and I'm really happy they brought that up. Uh, everyone who's listening, if you want to hear about Cypher's Trace, Dave Jevons has been on the show around, uh, which is the CEO of, of Cypher Trace. He's been on the show around three or four times talking about many different issues. Please uh, check out the podcast history and, and look for Cypher Trace and Dave Jevons, the CEO. Just a real quick comment before we move on about your the DeFi being an unregistered security, uh, and that's what Gary Ginsler said, who's the head of the SEC. Um, do you think that DeFi actually could pass the Howey test to be a security? Quick summary, what the Howey test is, there's four different uh, checkpoints of what, what they have to apply to make sure that, to see if something is a security. The first check is, is it an investment of money? The second check is, is it in a common enterprise? The third is, is there an ex expectation of profit? And the fourth, uh, is that profit being derived from the effort of others, like a CEO going out there to say, hey, we're going to make you money. There's an ex expectation uh, that this company will say in air quotes, or this uh, entity in air, air quotes is being led for profit. Uh, do you think that DeFi and uh, Gary Ginsler can get DeFi to pass the Howey test, or will he have to say, bend the rules of the Howey test to get that to apply to DeFi? I'm no Gary Gensler, but I don't think, I think it's fairly straightforward to understand them as securities. I think the, the, the primary point that I would make, which I think is probably on the front of everybody's lips when they're talking about DeFi and whether or not it represents uh, securities, is that there is an expectation of profit, which I believe is point C of the test that you've just, you've just helpfully um, shared all, all of those points. I don't, I mean, pretty much every consumer of decentralized finance in one, in one shape or form, I think, carries this expectation of profit. And therein lies the, the controversy. I think that's what Gary Gensler is getting at primarily. See, here's, here's where I'm going to push back on that. And I, and I don't want to get waffle on too long with this. I don't know why I start saying waffle on. It's your damn British terms. And I'm over over the... <laughs> Rubbing off on you. It, it, it definitely are. And actually, I think some of them are hilarious. I love them. Uh, but uh, <laughs> what it comes to is to be derived from the efforts of others. That's the only problem that I have with uh, looking at DeFi because if it is decentralized finance, there isn't anybody saying that the profit, it's a mechanism that is supposed to be self-serving uh, and self-feeding uh, that you are you know, uh, lending, creating interest, but you're putting up the capital yourself. And this is all a, a machine that works you know, with by mm -hmm. protocols and smart contracts mm -hmm. and, and so on and so forth. So there isn't a third party or one specific person. If there is the case, then yeah, it's a security. But that that last point of the derived profits to be derived from the efforts of others is the problem I'm having mm -hmm. a problem with. Well, I think the two things I'd say there is that derived by the efforts of others is an is is an except in my understanding of the phrase, at least it's saying it's exceptionally broad and it can capture a lot more than people might think when they when they think about it just for a couple of minutes. I think when you drill down, you realize that there are many things that be that can be captured in that clause. And then secondly, there are a lot of um, decentralized finance protocols that are actually a lot more centralized than people think. Many of these, many of these protocols actually make use of admin keys. And in the event of an exploit like this occurring, the teams behind these protocols can freeze funds and thus protect consumers. Um, so that's another point I think that we that, that we need to remain mindful of that 
while a lot of these decentralized finance products are, are, are sold or described or, or understood as truly decentralized, that's not necessarily always the case. So that, that's another thing I think that we need to, as I said, be mindful of. Moving on yeah. in our weekend review, um, we've already had El Salvador make Bitcoin legal tender, or let's say they're going to make it legal tender. And I think that's uh, going to happen and going to full effect in, I think, September or October, something later this year still. Argentina is talking about this as well. What's that mm. all about? Yeah, so um, Argentina's president, um, whose name is Alberto Fernandez, he said on a local television interview uh, that he didn't want to go out on a limb. So I think he's hedging his bets slightly, of course, by those words. Um, but he said that there is no reason to say no to establishing Bitcoin as legal tender, which is interesting, of course, because as, as, as you mentioned, there's many people that are likely likely know when they're already listening to this podcast, El Salvador already has its Bitcoin legal tender project well underway. Um, and this could be the second country to, to experiment with Bitcoin becoming legal tender. The only question I'm going to have with this is why? Why legal tender? Look, it sounds cool, but uh, we, we look at the stats, we look at the, um, the data, you know, when, when people are sending remittance back from, you know, different countries, when people want to huddle uh, uh, some wealth, they're using one of US dollars. Why Bitcoin? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the, what's the motivation for making that a, a legal tender? So the, mo the motivation for that is one of, you know, one of the most well, well established narratives surrounding Bitcoin today is that it's a hedge against inflation. Uh, that is true in the justifications we've seen coming out of El Salvador. And it is, according to what Alberto Fernandez, the president of Argentina, said recently, also true in Argentina. Uh, he, he actually said that the, the advantage of adopting Bitcoin as, as legal tender is that, and this is quoted in English from Spanish, the inflationary effect is largely nullified. Uh, so again, it's the, same, it's the same thing that many Bitcoin advocates have said. Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation. I think a lot of these countries that, have wrestled with inflationary issues before, and for specifically talking here about El Salvador, but also we can tie this to Argentina, a country that uses the US dollar, whenever the Federal Reserve in the United States prints more money and perhaps risks a higher inflation rate, the folks in El Salvador don't have any political representation behind that decision. They just have to deal with the potential inflationary effects of the currency that they have adopted. So there is, I suppose, a, a really strong political will to divorce yourself from that. And instead of just cutting the US dollar off, which would be, in my humble opinion, madness, it's a case of adopting a secondary legal tender currency, in this case, Bitcoin, and embrace those narratives that, that people have said before that Bitcoin is an effective hedge against inflation. This might be a, a stupid question, but in part of my ignorance with this, but I know when we have inflation here in the US, we feel it in the US because the US uh, or the Fed is you know, printing more money. We, we feel it right now in the US. Um, uh, Scott Cipollino, I'm, I'm happy you're not here because you'd be paying <laughs> a lot more for your bacon, but <laughs> or whatever you like to buy. I'm not too sure what's on your on your menu. But <laughs> but does countries that adopt the US dollar, do they feel the same inflation that we feel? Is it um, more inflation? Is it less? Do they, are they somehow mitigated because they're not within the US or how does inflation, our inflation of the dollar work, you know, in other countries if they've adopted the dollar? Well, I think that for any, any purchases, I think where the real, the real weight of this issue sort of lands is, as far as I understand it, at the very least, any international purchases that you make, 
um, those really start to bite and you start to feel the impact of inflation there. El Salvador is one of the world's leaders in terms of receiving remittances from abroad. So that's another massive part of the game when we're talking about why Bitcoin has been embraced in El Salvador, at least by political leadership, not necessarily by, by, the, by the society itself. Um, so I think that is really where, where the heart of the issue lies. You've got uh, a currency that is weakened on an international scale relative to other currencies. And a lot of people obviously don't like that. Inflation is a politically, it's, it's a hot potato everywhere in the world. No one likes the sound of it. Everybody worries that, that it's always going to be happening and rising increasingly. So um, if there's an alternative that, that, that people can be sold, then it's going to be popular to a varying degree or another. And we've seen now another political leader in Latin America, you know, sounding like he's ready to embrace Bitcoin, or at the very least, he's curious about it for that reason. Do you think that we're heading toward uh, massive inflation in the U.S.? I know we saw like four to five percent inflation over this past mm-hmm. quarter here in the U.S., but do you think we're going to be going going moon? No, I don't. I don't really um, take, you know, I, I'm not an economist, so take my opinion with a grain of salt. But I think that, you know, what people tend to overlook is that inflation is very carefully managed, or at least it should be very carefully managed. Um, by every administration and not to let any administration off the hook. That's not my job. It's not my job description. But I think that, you know, everybody's going to be doing their best to make sure that inflation doesn't go through the roof and go to the moon like you've just mentioned there. I think we hear a lot about inflation within the crypto industry because, as we've just discussed, one of Bitcoin's largest narratives. Right. Exactly. One of one of one of the one of the largest um, selling points for Bitcoin is that it is a hedge against inflation. The less inflation we see in the in, in the traditional financial world, the less appealing that narrative becomes. So we, we tend to hear a lot about it. That's not to say it's not an issue. Of course it is. Um, but, you know, the, these sort of doomsday predictions that inflation is going to you know, go to the moon, like you just mentioned, I think that they're not necessarily well-founded. Do you think that it's just, uh, and to quote Star Trek Picard, sheer <laughs> fucking hubris uh, of the United States or of uh, uh, Westerners, um, and Westerners meaning you're included with that, people in the US, people in mm-hmm. Europe, uh, that we're not going to see that because we have some sort of magic control. No, I, I mean, look, this it's ha- history is littered with hyperinflation. Nazi Germany, look at Zimbabwe towards the end of the last century. I mean, those are two massive examples. I don't think that it's the kind of thing that Western nations, powerful nations are immune to far from it. I just don't necessarily believe in the, the doomsday predictions that we see sometimes. I think that those are, those are quite drastic. Um, and I haven't seen evidence that they're going to come true. Um, but again, that's not like being very careful with my words here. That's not to say that inflation in the United States and any other Western nation is not a risk and not an issue currently. Of course it is. Um, I just, as I said, I don't think that the doomsday predictions are going to come true. Well, you know what? One prediction coming true is that Bitcoin is going up and we are seeing new higher Bitcoin prices day after day. Uh, just you know, touch on the prices. I know we had the price recap earlier in this episode, but Bitcoin is up 14% in seven days. We just had um, a minor um, readjustment of the hash rate, um, the, the difficulty. It went up uh, yep. over 7% uh, in, the, in the last adjustment. Uh, we have seen Bitcoin keep going up. We see Ethereum going up. We see Binance going at number three. Cardano is absolutely uh, you know, going crazy on the news of smart contracts finally being possibly released on Cardano. Um, it's up 50% in seven. Um, what else is happening in the crypto space and in price? I mean, I think the overall sentiment of the space right now is we're pretty bullish again. We're a little uncertain about 
just caught a couple of weeks ago. Are we in a new bear market? What is happening? Are we going down to $3,000? But now we're all feeling a little better about everything, even though this infrastructure bill passed, even though this ha hack happened, even though you know we do have a lot of bearish news, uh, Bitcoin price in the crypto space is very bullish. What is happening in, in price action across the board? Yeah, I mean, that, you, you, you alluded to it there. I actually think it's, it's really interesting to see over the last week. If we were told, I mean, the crypto industry moves really quickly, right? We don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, in the next month. If we were told a month ago that um, everything that's happened with the infrastructure bill combined with the words of um, the SEC chair, Gensler, some other prominent senators, then the poly network hack, if, if we knew that this was all going to sit side by side within each other within a couple of weeks, the assumption would be that we'd see a, a fall in price. That's not happened. And I think it's really interesting to see that Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some other cryptocurrencies as well have all actually been going up or at least at state level amidst all of this bad news um one that caught my eye as well recently was that the axi infinity token axs has actually gone over up 60 percent over the last week um it's relatively modest gains over the last um 24 hours or so uh, about seven percent the last time i checked uh but this week as i said it's gone up about 60 percent and just in the last 24 hours axs has finally been listed on coinbase which i think is sort of you know bumped it up a little bit. That's obviously a big event for, for the token. Um, and it's also symptomatic of, you know, a, a larger partnership that we've seen growing over the last couple of quarters between crypto and gaming. So for those that don't know, Axie Infinity is a blockchain-based game that uh, players can earn rewards on. Uh, and I think that, you know, it, it's, it's sort of at the front line, let's say, or among frontline players of that growing world of crypto and gaming. Um, so that's something that I had my eyes on this week in terms of prices. And you've mentioned there as well that Bitcoin has been pretty resilient this week. It's touching, it's it's approaching 50K again. Ethereum is over 3K as well. So yeah, things are, in terms of the market, we've seen a lot of green lines this week. Uh, one thing I also want to ask you about and just talk about really quick is what the hell is going on in the NFT space? We have, we no, I mean, I'm, and I, and I'm not I mean, saying, I'm, I'm literally like, what the hell is going on? Before it was people. Okay, I get it. People. He made a lot of art. He's an artist. Uh, Five thousand or every days sold it for like sixty. What was it? Sixty nine point three million dollars. Great, right, yeah. love it. Good. Thank you, people. Uh, Furious sold their art. Uh, his art for two point one. Uh, we saw you know uh, other art going for Christie's. Uh, I can't remember the the person's name when they did the beautiful of the Genesis block and they had the sixteen different. I think it was sixteen different pieces of art. I can't remember the person's name off the top of my head. You know, I understood those NFTs. Now we have bored apes and, <laughs> and, and pudgy penguins. Um, yeah. <laughs> and they're going for literally uh, 200, 800, a million dollars a piece. Uh, mm. it, it, am, I, am I getting old, bro? I mean, I feel like that sometimes. One of the things that I, that I, I took a note of this because I just thought it was so, it captured the industry, I think, perfectly. And I don't, this is, I don't mean this to be derogatory in any, in any sense. I actually think it's a really good analogy for the rest of the wider world of, of, of traditional art. And it was just a, a, a comment on a, on a thread about NFTs that I saw on Twitter. And one user, I can't remember the, the, the name of the user, but the tweet itself was, it's so stupid that it's perfect. And I think that, that <laughs> yeah, I, th I think it just makes a lot of sense that you see a lot of these things going viral. Um, and you see sometimes things in traditional art that, that go for millions and perhaps you don't quite understand why. And in that sense, that might be, you know, the NFT market's greatest claim to be just like regular art, because I think that's that's a that's a confusion a lot of people have with traditional art, as I said. Um, but, you know, you mentioned Bored Ape NFTs, uh, 
Ethereum pet rock NFTs as well have been selling for more than 100,000 bucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the thing that I'm finding a little bit more, I mean, obviously those, those things are great. One thing that I think is, is really interesting as well, talking before about crypto and gaming is like a developing subculture. NFTs and sports has been another really interesting sort of marriage that we've seen over the last couple of quarters. So uh, I mentioned actually this the other day, Tom Brady, Derek Jeter, Tiger Woods, uh, Naomi Osaka. These are all names that are in the NFT industry already or names that have dropped hints that they're going to embrace the, NS- the NFT industry soon. Uh, so that's another interesting thing that's going on with the NFT market now. A lot of people suggested that, you know, after that initial boom that was largely characterized by people and that $69 million sale, they suggested that it was perhaps, you know, dying slash slowing down, coming to a lull. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's true. It's just changing. Uh, the only thing I can think of right now is uh, Beanie Babies. I mean, I, you're going to have like a bunch of pet rocks hanging around. I mean, I remember this whole um, meme or this, I don't know if it was a meme or if it was just a news article, but it's been passed around lately of these, this couple that was getting divorced and they're on the, the, the floor of the courtroom dividing their Beanie Babies because, you know, obviously it was that they're their joint investment and they thought they're like, they want, they're going to get rich from it. Is this going to be like that or people are going to be in divorce dividing their NFTs and in 10 years, we're going to say, hey, uh, your pet rock or your board ape isn't worth shit. I mean, it could very well be the case. It's still a very new industry. Wait for NFT divorces. It could very well be a NFT a divorces. Story. It could be a fun story down the line. Where is, your, where is Jerry Springer when we need it? Do you guys have a Jerry Springer in the UK? <laughs> uh, we did. Uh, Jeremy Kyle was his name, but that show is now off air. It's you, no longer a thing. And you, can, you cannot see Scott's face when he said that. He seems very uh, happy about that. <laughs> Yeah, look it up, everyone. Jeremy Kyle. <laughs> no, I, I'd rather not. Uh, Scott Chablina, <laughs> writer, writer for Decrypt, thanks for coming on and doing this week in review. And uh, it was good talking to you, brother. All good. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Decrypt Daily. My name is Matthew Diemer. Again, I apologize for the sound of this episode. I'm trying to do these podcasts wherever I can because we have no power, no internet, and so on and so forth. So I'm trying to do this in my car in neighbor's houses, or even by the beach. Anyway, please go to Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe, share, leave us a comment. And until the weekend updates, happy hodling, everyone.